and you know the story, he beautifully, amazingly passes the test. Not as I will, but your will be done. And so instead of abandoning the mission that God had sent him on, he abandons himself to God, leaves himself in God's hands. He does, as the author of Hebrews says, he, he endured the cross because he, uh, there was a joy that was set before him. He, he, he disregarded the shame knowing that his father had glory prepared for him, that he would sit down at the right hand and holding on to those truths, he passes the test. How much there is for us to learn from Jesus' example here. We need to be those who would abandon ourselves to God, leave ourselves in God's hands. And when we surrender to Him this way, what great things He can accomplish for His namesake. I'm going to be giving this evening a meditation uh, that I've shared in years past. It's called The Ancient Places of Abandonment. And there are two texts that I'm going to be looking at primarily tonight. The first is in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, and the other is in John 19. You can turn to the first of those with me, Matthew 26, and in a little while I'll read a portion of the Passion as it's recorded by Matthew. But to prepare us for what we're going to read and the way we're going to reflect on our Lord's sacrifice, Think with me about there are, how that there are some places that have become famous for one thing, even though they have a long history related to other things. For instance, if I say to you the name Auschwitz, you are going to think of the Nazi concentration camp where millions lost their lives under Nazi Germany. And yet there's a whole lot more to Auschwitz than just that you probably wouldn't think of the fact that it was a thousand-year-old city, rich with Polish history. No, because what Auschwitz is known for is that dark, terrible period of Nazi occupation. Let me share something a little less grim, perhaps. Uh, Gettysburg. Well, I suppose that's grim too, isn't it? You're likely going to think of the great Civil War battle and the, the address that President Lincoln gave there some months later but you probably won't think of the fact that it was a town founded by Samuel Gettys in the 1700s, and it began as a tavern at the crossroads of roads between Baltimore, Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh. A long storied history, but we don't think of that. We think of the great thing that happened there. When it comes to the account of Jesus' passion, there are a number of peculiar places that are named. Sometimes the gospel writers include the original Aramaic or Hebrew names for these places, places like Gethsemane, Gabatha, and maybe more famous than that last one, Golgotha. These are peculiar places to our ears, and yet we've come to associate them with something fantastic. These were mostly unknown places to the outside world, but now they are famous for the things accomplished there by our Savior. 
As you read the gospel accounts of our Lord Jesus' death and his resurrection, there are a number of ancient names that punctuate the stories. I've mentioned them already, Gethsemane, Gabbatha, Golgotha, and another one, Arimathea. They are foreign words, strange words, and yet to those of us who know the story of our Lord, they are unforgettable. They are profound. And what I'd like us to think about tonight is how each of these places has some idea of abandonment associated with them. Some of them good, some not so good. The Passion Stories name several peculiar places of abandonment where Christ accomplished our atonement. By way of preview, we'll go to Gethsemane and see there how Jesus abandoned himself to God. We'll go to Gabbatha, where Jesus was abandoned by man. And lastly, tonight, we'll go to Golgotha, where Jesus was abandoned, in a way, by God himself. Come with me to Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus abandoned himself to do, to do, to God, rather, to do his will. Jesus abandoned himself to God to do his will. The reading I'd like us to, snippet of reading I'd like us to do tonight is in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, this cannot pass unless I drink it. Your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now there's a sense in which Jesus is abandoned by his disciples in this moment, but they don't mean it. They mean him no harm. They just have no sense of the gravity of all that's to take place, and they are uh, 
tired after the holiday of Passover and they've had a large meal and walked a great distance and they're oblivious to all the things taking place. But I'd like us to focus in this story we've just read about how Jesus abandons himself to God to do his will. They have come to Gethsemane. Now, the travelogue of Jesus in the week of his passion is a complex thing. And there's no time tonight to take us from place to place to place. But you can note on the map there how the Mount of Olives is there on the east side of the city of Jerusalem. It looms large over the city. And it is called the Mount of Olives because it is, was in those days a uh, hillside covered with olive orchards. Olive orchards and fig orchards covered most of the hill. And there, on that hill, and much those orchards, they have come to a place named Gethsemane. Only Matthew and Luke give us the name for it, but the other Gospels refer to it rightly as the garden. Gethsemane is an Aramaic word. Here is, and you know our New Testament was written in Greek, and now we've got it in English, so here's a, here's a word, three languages removed. Gethsemane. You know what it means? It means olive press. It was common in orchards to have a fenced-off area where the olives could be processed. This is not a flower garden. It's a guarded place where there's some machinery, and there might, it might be a place for, to rest and relax as Jesus has come. It's a quiet place, a secluded place. Olive orchards often would have wheels for pressing the olives like this ancient one here. And they'd be enclosed and guarded off. But this evening, it was not olives that were being pressed. It was Jesus' soul. As he was pressed hard with the painful path that lay before him. And he prays. If there be some other way to accomplish what God has sent him for, that the Lord would allow it. Jesus knows that this is a time of testing and temptation, and he tells his disciples they need to pray. It is an hour of great temptation. There was a temptation placed upon Jesus to abandon the mission here at its most pregnant moment. A temptation that would actually overtake all of the other disciples. They would temporarily fail the test. When the troops come to arrest Jesus, they'll all flee. But Jesus would gloriously pass this test. Not as I will, but your will be done. There was a part of Jesus that naturally did not want to experience what he was about to experience. He wanted to accomplish what he had come for, yes, but he innocently, without any guile, without any selfishness, asks his father that if it be his will that this cup, this cup full of poison, as it were, which he was going to have to drink down to the dregs, if that cup could pass by, there was nothing wrong at all in his making that request. There was no sin that prompted it. The temptation was for him not to ask such a thing. The temptation was for him to disregard what his father wanted him to do. 
and you know the story, he beautifully, amazingly passes the test. Not as I will, but your will be done. And so instead of abandoning the mission that God had sent him on, he abandons himself to God, leaves himself in God's hands. He does, as the author of Hebrews says, he, he endured the cross because he, uh, there was a joy that was set before him. He, he, he disregarded the shame knowing that his father had glory prepared for him that he would sit down at the right hand and holding on to those truths, he passes the test. How much there is for us to learn from Jesus' example here. We need to be those who would abandon ourselves to God, leave ourselves in God's hands. And when we surrender to him this way, what great things he can accomplish for his namesake. A couple decades ago, there was a Christian songwriter, Steve Camp, wrote a song that struck me in my, when I was in my 20s called Abandoned to God. It was a song of dedication. Abandoned to God, heart, soul, and mind, surrendering every part of my life. Oh, this is my prayer, my solemn vow, just to be hopelessly, helplessly, faithfully abandoned to God. In Gethsemane, Jesus is our example of abandoning ourselves to the will of our Lord. We're going to go to another ancient place of abandon, and this is probably the least well-known of them all, at the hall of Gabbatha. Jesus was abandoned by man in a miscarriage of justice. And for this, I'd like us to turn over to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. All of the Gospels mention what takes place here, uh, but John is the only one who gives us the old Aramaic name of this place. John 19, verses 1 through 16. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, put a purple robe on him, and they began to come up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man! So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, 
you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. Gabbatha, the least well-known of these ancient words, it's mentioned by name only here in John's Gospel. John tells us that uh, it was called the pavement, but that the Hebrews called it Gabbatha, which is the Hebrews of that day were speaking the Aramaic language. This is an Aramaic word, and it means uh, the stone house. And you see a picture here. This, the, the, the ground in this picture is believed to be the pavement. This would have been an open courtyard in, uh, in those days, and now buildings have been put around it. A pavement of probably a marbled floor courtyard there are some striking things that have been found over the years on the floor of Gabbatha. And I know you can't make out all the designs in that picture, but those are etchings made by Roman soldiers where they would play little games. They'd roll dice to see which soldier would go torture which prisoner in which way. There are a number of these across the floor at the pavement. The, what was the function of this place of Gabbatha? Well, under Roman rule, it was the highest point of justice within the city. It was the great courtyard that sat by Pilate's bema seat right at the Antonio Fortress. Jesus, at this point, has already had five trials in one night, five, and here's the sixth one. Three Jewish courts and now the third Roman court. This is the final stop. And as we read, everything could have stopped here. In a sense, by human law, everything should have stopped here. Pilate could see that this was a a culturally, religiously motivated thing, that he had done nothing against Roman law. And Pilate is sarcastic and dismissive. The, the thing that finally catches him is that they are going to complain to Rome that Pilate is not loyal to Caesar. And really to save himself, Pilate 
hands over Jesus and what is the greatest miscarriage of justice. He was not only mocked, but here the supposedly the best legal system in the world was shown to be a mockery. It is as the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. That is, by a broken kind of justice. Human justice that was mangled and twisted to result in oppression on the human level. That is what led to the sentence of Jesus' execution. This was, of course, not the first time that Jesus had been rejected. Uh, he would be handed over by, he would be betrayed by Judas earlier. And even during the days of his ministry, there were some who received him and many who rejected him. The religious leaders had for some time uh, unceremoniously rejected him. Even his disciples for a time had left him. But this here, this is the, the final stage of rejection. This is for those who were, knew what they were doing to him, who knew who he was. This is what Jesus warned was the unpardonable sin. There were some who knew what they were doing. There were those who did not know what they were doing. And so Jesus had said, he who hands you over me over to you has the greater sin. It is to the Roman, about the Roman soldiers that Jesus says on the cross, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Well, but some of them did know, not the soldiers. Some of the Jewish leadership did, in fact, know what he was doing. And now we see fulfilled in, the, in this worst way what John had said at the beginning of his gospel. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Light had come into the world, but as John says, men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The rejection of Jesus is something that goes on and on and on. It happens today, not on the grand scale public display like here, but there are still many people who hear the claims of Jesus they hear the word, they, they, they see the, the, the power of the gospel, and they want their own way, not God's way. Oh, it is a great tragedy to misjudge Jesus. It was a place of abandonment here at the pavement at Gabbatha where Jesus was abandoned by man in a miscarriage of justice. The last one we'll consider, focus on tonight, is Golgotha, a more well-known word here. At Golgotha, Jesus was abandoned by God as a sacrifice for our sins. We'll stay here in John's Gospel and look at verses 17 and 18. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. 
we know this place, this hill, by a few different names. The, when the Bible was translated into Latin, the, the word that was used here for the hill was Calvaria. You ever wonder where we get the name Calvary? It's in, you'll find it only in things like the King James Version. They're, they're picking up on that Latin word. Calvary is this place of a skull. Matthew and John both use the Aramaic name here, Golgotha, and they both translate it for us, this place of a skull. It's an unusual name to us, and, but it was well known to them. Uh, what it suggests is it was a sudden mound visible there right outside the city. Um, there is some debate as to where exactly this is. There is what's called Gordon's Calvary General Cyrus Gordon thought that maybe this famous spot here was where it actually took place. He preferred this because of all the excesses that he saw taking place within the tomb of the Holy Sepulchre by the various Christian denominations who literally fought with each other over control of the place. Uh, but actually, I think it's probably more likely that the original site is under that building, which in ancient days was outside the gates of the city. The place of a skull, it probably just refers to a small, round, bald mound of rock. Not really a hill, not really a mount, <laughs> but a, a mound. Now, I know that might mean we have to change some of our songs, but I'll not be an editor for that. Hmm. High enough to be an elevated site so that people walking by could see it. Probably situated right alongside a, a roadside, as this reconstruction has suggested. That's where the Romans liked to do their executions. As people trafficked in and out of the cities for their commerce and and at this point, they're there for a holiday. There would be probably upwards of 160,000 Jews in Jerusalem for Passover. The city was crammed. And right before they put out some prisoners on display, this is what happens to those who don't submit to Rome. It is at this place where Jesus utters the famous cry of dereliction. Or another way to translate, render that is his cry of abandonment. In Matthew 27, verse 46, a verse you know, we're told that about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There, Jesus fills full the ancient words of David from Psalm 22, verse 1, and how awfully full of meaning they become. There, at that moment, in some hard-to-fathom way, God the Father, to some degree, abandoned His Son. It doesn't seem right that the father would abandon his son when the son had just abandoned himself to him. But you see, this is part of the mystery of our atonement. This was the plan, a plan to bring about our redemption, a plan for the price of sin to be paid for. 
Because as the father turned away from his son and the wrath of God came on his son in that moment, there was a transaction of sin going to Christ and righteousness coming to those for whom he died. It is as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, God the Father, made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's like we sang earlier in that new hymn, God estranged from God in what some theologians have called an eternal moment where the infinite price was paid for all who would believe in him. It's a staggering thought what that must be. As, as torturous as crucifixion was, and you've heard some details of that, no doubt, and I'll not regale you with that. As torturously painful as that was, the, the worst suffering Jesus had was this sense of being judged by his Father. Not for sins he had done, but for our sins. And because Christ has done that for us, beloved, those of us who have trusted Jesus, those of us who have received His righteousness and salvation, we never have to fear about being abandoned by God. He has been abandoned in our place. And the gospel, the good news that comes to us, includes promises like, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In our first point tonight, we considered how Jesus and Gethsemane was our example. Here in Golgotha, we see him not so much as our example, but as our substitute, taking on in himself what we deserved, the just, righteous wrath of God. You see, the cross, uh, everyone who was there that day, they saw the cross as an instrument of punishment. They saw it as a torture device, an execution tool, a tool. But Jesus and the Father understood it was something more than that. They understood that it was an altar where the sacrifice for our sins was perfectly paid. The Passion Story names several peculiar places of abandonment where Christ accomplished our atonement. In Gethsemane, Jesus abandoned himself to God. At Gabbatha, Jesus was abandoned by man. And at Golgotha, Jesus was abandoned by God. And we gain because of all that Christ lost. But please, please, let's not leave here tonight with the wrong impression that Jesus was a loser. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, no, uh, we gain through his loss, but he also gained much more. You see, the story is not done. The passion is not done. We'll come back here in a couple days and commemorate an amazing victory that Jesus accomplished. And it was after that victory that uh, he received a name that was above every name, that no other human has ever accomplished what he did. There was no other human like him. He was the God-man. 
And God has given to him a people that will be his forever. And though he lost, he actually ended up winning. And through faith in Jesus, we come to share in that victory over sin and death and hell. There's other, one, one other place of abandonment I'm not going to talk about tonight except just to sketch it real quick. It's, uh, it's connected with one other peculiar place, Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea is an Aramaic name of a village a number of miles away. That's where Joseph was from. Joseph was part of that high council that had convicted Jesus. Apparently, he wasn't there that night. He was already a bit of an outsider. He didn't live in Jerusalem. He was from Arimathea. But this wealthy man had already been building his own tomb, big fancy tomb, prominent tomb, right alongside the road. Everyone knew where it was. Oh, yeah, Joseph's digging that out. And he is going to give Jesus a proper public burial. And by that act of kindness, God will use that to squelch some of the rumors that might have arisen after his resurrection. It showed that Jesus really was an honorable man who had not been utterly abandoned by God. He was not abandoned by God because he was a sinner, but that he was doing something for sinners. And that little piece of real estate in Jerusalem that the Arimathean owned, there's one more work of abandonment that happens. In a few days, we celebrate how Jesus abandoned the tomb. Father, we rejoice in your grace to us, sending your Son to pay an awful price we could not pay, bringing us salvation and deliverance and life that we don't deserve. It was a cruel and dark and painful thing that he went through, but he did it out of love love for you, and love for us. What a price. There's nothing quite like it. And so, Lord, as we see how you were faithful to your Son to bring about this plan of redemption, we can be confident you'll be faithful to us through the gospel. And we desire, Lord, that we would be faithful unto you. And Lord, we also pray for anyone who may have come this night who has not given themselves over to Jesus, trusting in Him completely and only to be Savior and Lord. May this be a day of great transaction, of sins washed away, and new life coming through Him. We thank You for this grace and gift in His name, we pray. Amen.